The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show where I investigate how we're changing the nature of work and how that work is changing us. When we look back at the stories of how great companies are founded, they often start with a person who had an idea. Eileen Fisher thought women needed a clothing line with very simple pieces. Mark Zuckerberg dreamed up a website to connect his friends. I was just trying to help connect people at, at colleges and a few schools, right? And that was a basic need where, you know, I looked around at the internet and, you know, there were services for a lot of things that you wanted, right? I mean, you could find music, you could find news, you could find information, but you couldn't find and connect with the people that you cared about. But anyone who's ever actually tried to come up with something new knows that that is never really the full story. Dreaming up ideas is a messy process. It usually involves lots of people, not just one. And figuring out which of those ideas are worth pursuing is a different exercise altogether. That skill, though, knowing how to come up with ideas and then how to hone them, it will be one of the most important skills for any of us to get down. So this week we're tackling that. Ideas. I want to know where they come from, if they're any good, and how we figure that out. And, of course, what do we do with them? I'll talk to Tim Brown. He runs IDEO. That's a consultancy that helps businesses think up new things and solve creative problems. I first met Tim 15 years ago now. That was a time when design was really about making objects pretty. But Tim believed that design could be applied to anything. He was trying to spread the notion that anyone could use a basic design process to solve business problems. Today, Tim's thesis has gone mainstream. Many companies like Apple and Uber and even LinkedIn have entire design research departments dedicated to this. Of course, once you've arrived at a good idea, you have to test it. So later in this episode, Caroline Fairchild will go deep with a company that attempts to build startups by doing just that. But first, Tim Brown. Tim, you have made a career out of helping people find their way to good ideas. So where do ideas come from? They come from nothing. <laughs> That's so scary. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes it such an exciting and difficult process, right? Is that at some point a new idea doesn't exist and then another point it does exist. So they're coming from nothing. So there is no, there are starting points. There are many, many starting points, but they are reference points or they're, they're the points where you ask the question. Then if the world already had the solution for you, then it wouldn't be creative. What you were doing isn't, isn't creative. So you have to have this comfort with the fact that you start with nothing. The thing that's unique about trying to solve a problem creatively is that by definition, it has never been solved that way before, which is different when you're trying to solve a problem as an engineer, actually, because the point of engineering is it is a problem that's been solved before, somehow, somewhere, and there's, a, there's an equation to support that idea, right? And so the search, when you're creative problem solving, when you're designing, the search is not just for the solution, but it's almost the search for the way of getting to the solution, which is why, as designers, we spend so much time going out into the world, talking to people and looking at them and understanding them. We're, we're almost searching for the right question to ask. What is it you need? What will help make your life better? And because we're searching for the question, we're searching for the right way 
of getting to the solution. And then eventually we find the solution, right? We find the new thing, the new product, the new service, the new way of, the new, the new form for that product to take so that it's a better fit with your life and everybody else's life. And so that mystery, that kind of ambiguity is what really screws people up when they're trying to become, when they're trying to be designers because there's no formula. Right. You're entering into a, in, into a sort of a, imagine like it's a fog. You sort of, <laughs> And, and you've got this little boat, and that's your design process. You but you know you row into the fog. You've no idea where the, where the other side of the river is or the other side of the lake. You know there's something there probably somewhere, but until you start rowing and getting out there, you, you don't discover it. And eventually, you know, through all this hard work of exploring different things, you know, the fog starts to part, and you, you see the bank on the other side, and eventually you get to it after a lot of hard work. And it's that confidence. It's what my friend and colleague and founder of IDEO, David Kelly, calls creative confidence. It's not just the ability to have ideas. It's the kind of, it's the confidence to act on them. It's the confidence to actually try and leap into this process, even when you don't know what the outcome's going to be. What happens if you're rowing in the boat and the fog never lifts? Then you row back to the bank and pick another problem. <laughs> sometimes that happens, actually. I mean, honestly, I mean, sometimes you explore something and you can't make sense of it all. You can't get to a point where you can do something real. I mean, you, you, it's what sometimes I see design teams do this. They explore, strategize. They're, they're in this abstract world of what's the problem, what's the problem. They never actually get to something. Um, it's why it's so important in the world of design to start making something, whether yeah. it's a piece of code or a physical thing or, or, a, or, or making a movie, whatever it is. Make something pretty early because otherwise it's very easy to stay in this kind of abstract space. As a young child, were you comfortable with not knowing? I think it becomes a bit of a routine thing where if you just make things, and I spent a lot of time as a kid just making things. I mean, building things, building models, making paintings and drawings. And and so the the, the moment of having nothing was, was pretty short-lived, right? Because I'd get up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to paint this thing today or I'm going to make this thing. And, uh, you know, it all started off with my obsession over Lego. Um, and, Legos uh, are awesome. They are awesome. Yeah. Totally awesome. And so that, that comfort with having nothing becomes a, almost becomes a routine thing. But has several decades at IDEO given you a formula for where ideas come from? I don't know that it's given me a formula, although it's given me a high degree of confidence that I know where they don't come from, and they don't come from out of my own head. Ideas come from interactions with the world, mostly through interactions with other people, to be really honest with you, and the world that they live in. And so if you're not having those interactions, if you're not putting yourself in the place to be inspired by how other people exist and the things that they do and the things that they're excited by, you won't have new ideas. I depend on ideas. They are my currency as a, as a writer and a person working in media. And I'm always surprised to find that when I feel dry and I look up, I realize that I actually haven't read anything new or outside of my mm. filter bubble in a week or haven't sat down with a colleague I haven't spoken to. Totally, totally. Or you get into these patterns of thinking you're doing something new, but you're reading the same things over and over again, or right. you're putting yourselves into the same situations uh, over again. And I think that the further you go into your career, the easier that it is to fall into that trap, I think. And sort of, arguably, that's why people change jobs and put themselves into different situations. Not something I've been very good at, actually, but... <laughs> Can you tell me about a time that you made a bet on somebody as like, able to bring in new ideas and that bet fell flat? Um, I've had a few examples of getting excited about bringing a new craft or discipline into, into IDEO and, it, and it, not, it not working. I mean, the first one I can remember is 
when we started to realize, actually, in order to do what we do, we kind of needed to understand about business a bit more and get a, a, get a little bit more open-minded about that, you know, business was a useful thing. And uh, the first time we tried that, I remember one or two folks coming in to, uh, who, who are traditional business consultants. They come through the traditional consulting background and totally failed. And it failed because the way they thought and what they were trained to do was different from the way we thought. They were taught to think very analytically in a very structured way and, and sort of extrapolate the past into the future. And that didn't, just didn't connect to the way we thought. And we hadn't figured out how to give them our methodology, right? We hadn't figured out. And so when we tried it again, and we did a few years later, we tried it again, we look, went out and looked for people who were experienced in business but had got these weird backgrounds who maybe they'd been trained as an architect and then gone to business school or an engineer, or at least they knew about making things. And then we invited them in to IDEO not to be business consultants, but to be designers. Right. And it worked beautifully. IDEO's business is, I mean, your consultancy. So you help other businesses and nonprofits and other organizations think through how to solve a problem through your lens. But often you're walking into their cultures. And I'm curious if there are cultures where ideas go to die. There are cultures that unfortunately are so focused on efficiency that there's no space for, for newness. There's sure. no space for exploring uh, the unknown. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that ideas go there to die, that ideas never live in the first place, right? yeah. or they struggle to live in the place. They're, they're like these, these tiny little weedy plants that are trying to break through the surface <laughs> and they tend not to make it. I want to know if somebody is, say, 22, what would you advise them to do if they're interested in design? The important decision I know I made when I was, actually before I was 22, I was probably 16 or 17, was not be dissuaded from the passion that I had to kind of cross normal boundaries in terms of what I was interested in. So, you know, I went through the English school system where you're expected to specialize really pretty early on. By the time you're 18, you're supposed to have decided that you're going to be an engineer or you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be an artist or whatever it might be. Right. Where did you grow up? Uh, Near Oxford. Got it. And yet I was this weird kid who studied engineering, physics, art, and history (laughs) because I loved them all, (laughs) right? That passion about crossing boundaries, I realize, has been incredibly valuable to me as a designer because design is about crossing boundaries. Design is about worrying about the technology and the human being and the business or worrying about how something looks or how something feels and also how something works. And so if you think that that idea of crossing boundaries, that idea of being interested in not what is inside a conventional silo or space or professional discipline, but what might connect different ones together, then design's a great place for you. Sure. Is it a growing place? Seems to be. When I moved to Silicon Valley or San Francisco in the late 1980s, I'm guessing there were less than a couple of hundred designers living in the Bay Area. Now there are thousands. Yeah. Because every company... Uh, has built design into what it does. And not just every company. Uh, more and more nonprofits are building design into their activities in other parts of the world, not so much San Francisco, but governments are building design. I mean, I've got many friends who play really interesting roles as designers within parts of government around the world today. If we think that the job market has changed in the last 20 years, the way that it 
might reshift in the next 20 years as artificial intelligence goes from something that we talk about and experiment with to something that sort of remakes our economy from yeah, top to bottom. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't help wondering what it's going to be like when people start turning up as teams instead of individuals, not teams of people, but teams of individuals and their technology. Okay, explain that to me. Well, if you think about it today, so the, the, the biggest asset I had anyway in my career and many of the designers who come and join IDEO have is the, they turn up with them themselves as a person, and their portfolio, which is the evidence of the work that they've done. But I think that it won't be that long before people are turning up with pieces of technology that have learned with them over time that are personal to them. Nobody else could have them because they're based on that person's experiences that make them better at what they do. So essentially, they're turning up as a team. Uh, as a team of an individual human being and the, the kind of package of technology, if you like, that they bring with them. And it's not skills anymore. It's not the fact they know how to use Microsoft Word or or, or they know how to code, but, they've, but there's literally, a, uh, I mean, I can't almost can't imagine what they're going to be, but I, I just sort of have this intuition that we're going to have people turning up with technology that acts alongside them in order to make them better at what they do. And that we'll be hiring them as teams. So what's the form factor for that? I mean, intuitively, as somebody who has written about technology for a couple of decades, that actually sounds right to me, too. Think about my relationship, for example, with Siri, my relationship with Alexa. I just set up Google well, Home. Well, I mean, one sort of simple example, but relevant one here is, you know, we already know that people turn up with their networks, right? right? And those networks are valuable to the businesses that recruit them. So if you turn up with a great LinkedIn network and you've used LinkedIn really well, you're more valuable as an employee than somebody who hasn't. So already you're turning up as a team. I'm, you're turning up with LinkedIn and, you're, and the way you've used LinkedIn. So that's, right. that's whatever. But, but Tim, my network, it's people right now. That's people. Yes, it is. But it's managed by a piece of technology, right? Sure. The only way that that network of people has an existence is because of the technology. And then the knowledge that flows, particularly through a network you have within LinkedIn, it can be quite substantial, right? So that's an, an, a really early, maybe relatively crude version of it. I think in the future, it might be, hey, I've developed a tool for the way that I manage my time that works really well for me, so that I can actually be more effective in the job that I do that's not available to anybody else, because it's it's been the way I've personally evolved over the last 10 years in my career, or, or whatever it might be. I mean, so it's essentially the idea that a software application or series of applications will grow with you yeah. such that um, – and maybe we're actually experiencing uh, the unintended consequences, negative consequences of this now as we look, for example, at like the concerns we have over our social media profiles and the questions about the data that we've given to Facebook. But the other side of that remains that there is something there that will make us more efficient yeah. as humans. Well, maybe more efficient or maybe more creative. So as a creative person, the thing that's most important – makes me most effective is where I get my inspiration from, right? Where do new ideas come from, right? Well, you know, for a lot of people, it's new experiences. They go off and travel or they meet new people, have great new conversations. But you could imagine building over time a way that you get inspired that works for you, that might be pulling images from around the world. It might be pulling the right news feeds. It might be connecting you to the right people. And you, the way that you curate that and marshal that makes you a far more creative person than somebody who doesn't do that well. And if you turn up as a package with those two things, you're a more valuable creative person. So I, I could easily imagine that happens in the future. We're going to take a break for a message from our sponsors. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. All right. Back to my conversation with Tim Brown. So I also just want to go back to this idea of me as a we, as, as, the, as the team me, the idea that in the future I'll have some sort of uh, technological assistant or a series of assistants. In that world that you intuit, uh, do the ideas ever come from the technology or do they always come from the human? I mean, I suppose in theory, uh, if the technology reaches a level of consciousness that it can understand the relevance of something going from nothing to something, then yes, the ideas could come from the... Today, that's not possible because the technology isn't capable of that level of consciousness. Because it's not so much having the idea, it's realizing you're having an idea that's the important piece, right? And that requires a high level of consciousness about what it is you're doing about realizing how it's new, where it's new, why it's new, why it applies to the problem that you're trying to solve. It's hard for me to imagine that being done through something that's purely kind of algorithmic. So it's sort of like an idea is not about the creator but about the editor and that you need to be your own editor. Well, I've always believed that it's why the world of your world and my world is pretty close together, actually, because sure. the creating the words and editing the words in your world are all part of the, ultimately the same act, right? And that's true in design, that creating the idea and then editing the idea, refining the idea, making the idea make sense to other people is all part of having the idea. Well, it's interesting to me that we've been talking about ideas and we haven't labeled them good ideas or bad ideas. And as I just note my fear around this, and I do have this sort of visceral fear as you're talking, it's, yeah, I might have ideas, but they might be bad ideas. The good news about ideas is the world tells you whether they're good or bad. You don't have to decide whether they're good or bad. It's why we test things, why we build prototypes, so that the world can tell us whether we've got a good idea or a bad idea. Sure. So your job is just is to create ideas. And the, and the better you get at being a designer, the better you get at this process that we, that we loosely call design thinking, the more often your ideas will be ones that the world will decide will be good and worthwhile. That is the satisfaction of mastering the art of design is that more and more of your ideas will be good ones. At the beginning, most of them will be terrible. Just like when you start learning to play a piano, most of those notes sound awful at the beginning. Right. Violins even worse, right? But eventually, more of them will, will, will sound good, and eventually all of them will sound good. You know, earlier in the season, we had Seth Meyers on the show. And uh, it strikes me that what you're saying is actually so similar to his discussion in writing. And he says, you know, I read all these jokes, we write all these jokes, and we go through them all. And not all the jokes I write are good. He says, a lot of the jokes I write don't land. A lot of them don't fall. You just keep working. You just keep doing it. Mm. And you depend on the people around you to hone it and, and help you find what lands. Yeah. I mean, all creative processes have some social component to them in that way, right? I mean, some people take a long time before they expose their ideas to, to others. But it sounds like Seth does that very early. We do. I do it very early. It's like I'd rather expose my ideas early and know that they're bad before I've invested too much effort in them than wait too long and for them to be so precious that I'm frightened, really, of what people 
think about the idea at that point. I don't want to be frightened about what people think about my ideas. The ideas also feel generative to me. If you get them going, it's like a spigot of water. They keep going. Yeah. But if you yeah. go for a while without one or if you get very attached to one. It's also how you make, at least in my world, design a team sport, right? If you take that attitude, if you have that mindset, then it, then it absolutely can be a collaborative act. If instead you want to hone the idea and make it perfect, it becomes an individual act. And there's nothing wrong with either version, except that when it's a team, you can think about bigger and more complex ideas. That was Tim Brown, CEO of IDEO. A decade ago, he wrote the de facto handbook for using design in business, and it has just been re-released. It's called Change by Design. There was some solid advice wrapped up in Tim's musings. I really connected to his thoughts on creative confidence. Having an idea is not enough. You have to believe in it enough to act on it. And if you're feeling just dry, out of ideas, you know, it's probably because you aren't exposing yourself to enough new people and experiences. Ideas beget ideas. He urges us not to get lost in the spiral of thinking, but just to start making things. Just get out there and test ideas as early as possible. There are a growing number of businesses that have sprung up to help people do just this. They go by different names, accelerators, incubators. Some call themselves startup studios. This week, Caroline took a look at one of them. Hey, Caroline. Hey, Jesse. After hearing from Tim and understanding more where good ideas come from, I wanted to speak with someone who turns ideas into companies. A good idea is something to start from. I think it, it will never end up being what you thought it was originally. That was Heather Hartnett. She's the founder of Human Ventures, which both invests in companies and works with founders who want to build them. Her success depends on recognizing good ideas before other people do, and then she helps them flourish. So we actually have a term, the myth of the big idea, because I think people put a lot of um, a lot of emphasis on ideas when it's really a lot about understanding the market and seeing where the opportunity is, testing um, how you're approaching that market, and then listening to the customer and and uh, building accordingly. And so I think it's a match of having an insight and then knowing how to listen. At Human, she will often start with the person who has an idea, and then she tests it out. Once we say we want to work with this founder, we put them through what we call our workshop process, which is about 100 days, testing that angle, going into the strategy, you know, into that market, seeing what the customers want to buy, putting up landing pages, putting some marketing and messaging around it, and seeing, you know, what is gaining traction. Now, at the end of that 100 days, give or take, we then will either green light that company to really start incorporate. And, and go full speed ahead with it and put some capital behind it, or we, we scrap it and we start back from the drawing board. So I asked Heather to tell me about a time that this process really worked. She told me about this startup, which makes baby food. But when the founders first came to her, their idea, it had nothing to do with baby food at all. They had a company idea in the parenting space around creating you know, a memory book for new parents, a digital version. But they ended up, you know, the company now is called Tiny Organics. It's a brand around um, baby food, and it's creating baby-led weaning food in the early stages of baby's life. And their brand is really taking off, and they're creating products that are going to be synonymous with their vision. They saw the white space, which was organic food. And so that's what they ended up launching with. But finding the white space isn't everything. So much of this is about timing. I think some of the ideas that are really innovative are quite simple. And the ones that really make an entire market shift, 
you couldn't hear them in this state of mind and understand them for where the market was going. So an example of that, what I mean by that is something like Airbnb, before Airbnb existed, you heard of that concept and and you weren't in the right mindset to be able to think that that could be a big idea because it was unheard of that you would have the trust in order to to have somebody come into your home and and, um, that sharing economy didn't even exist yet. As a generation went through a, a mind shift right? The entire generation that went through the recession, their mindset shifted. And then you can see that opportunity pretty clearly. Heather shows us that ideas, whether they're big like Airbnb or smaller like tiny organics, they all have one thing in common. They probably weren't what they are today when they first started. Thanks, Caroline. So last week, I asked you to send me voice memos about where your most creative ideas come from. And I learned that a lot of you, like me, uh, tend to get in the shower when you're feeling stuck. Why do our best ideas come to us in the shower? I don't know. But I heard a lot of other great stories, too, like this one from authors Melissa and Jonathan Nightingale, who are also married. You asked about daily creative practices. Um, When we were writing How Fucked Up Is Your Management, one of the things that we found really worked was we were working in our day jobs as tech execs, and we'd come home at the end of the day, we'd like eat dinner, put the kids to bed, and then we just talk about the shit that tech kept getting wrong over get and over again. And we get really pissed off about it. So anger. Anger at night, after dinner, at your bosses. That's a source of creative inspiration I hadn't considered. Next week, I'm talking to Aminatu So. She's a professional influencer, a convener of conversations. It's a line of work that is specific to our time, not something my parents set out to do in the same way at all. This season, I'll be featuring interviews with a number of people who have jobs of the future. They're doing things that just didn't exist before. Autonomous car trainers, for example. If you have ideas for types of jobs you'd like to hear about, or if you have one of these jobs, send me a voice memo at hellomonday at linkedin.com. That's hellomonday at linkedin.com. I'd love to feature some on the show. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Dave Pond and Laura Sim with reporting by Caroline Fairchild. The show is mixed by Joe DiGiorgi. Florencia Eriando is head of editorial video. Dave Pond is our technical director. This week, the flu is Hello Monday's arch nemesis. Music was by Poddington Bear and Pachyderm. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Thanks for listening.